must be gone from there and then have matters. See how matters stand with you. The man is here today and tomorrow he is vanished. All the dullness and hardness of man's heart, which only thinks of what is present, looks not forward to things to come. You should in every action and thought so order yourself as if you were immediately to die. If you had a good conscience, you would not much fear death. If you were not prepared today, how will you be tomorrow? Tomorrow is an uncertain day. And how do you know that you will be alive tomorrow? Thus begins the imitation of Christ, or rather that chapter of it which is devoted especially to death. And that last word is from St. James. Tomorrow is an uncertain day. And how do you know that you will be alive tomorrow? Death, the result of sin. Death which was brought into the world through the sin of Adam and Eve. Death which they were able to undergo, but should not have gone under God, from which they were protected by a special grace of God, a grace they forsook. And that decision is passed on to you and to me. It is inevitable, and very few things in this world are inevitable. Death is one of them. It strikes the imagination so forcefully because, in part at least, it is final. It is final. Both God-fearing and godless men recognize that death is an end. Of course, we know that in a certain sense, life continues afterwards, but that life we have now on earth, as we have on earth, will come to an end, and it will be finished. There is no reprieve, there is no appeal, and there is no change afterwards, none at all. When we die, it is over. And that's the importance of the moment of our death. We know also that the period during which meriting is possible will come to an end at that moment. And forever will our soul remain fixed as it is when we die fundamentally turn towards God or away from Him. There's nothing that can be done about it forever. And it's that truth which leads so many people to avoid even thinking about that which they know deep down cannot be avoided. Death was not treated in such a manner by the saints, of course. Death, they thought of often, even daily, was part of their daily prayer life. Some of them would have a human skull in the room, on the desk, 
as a, as a souvenir of death, looking at it thinking, that is I at some point, I will look like that skull. There were others who spent a long time preparing and carving their own coffin, little by little, preparing that final resting place, that permanent bed on which they would lie. How different is the approach of men today? Sometimes one has the impression People think that by not thinking of death, one can avoid it. After all, the subject is, in many respects, rather unpleasant. Let me put it out of my mind. Let me pretend that it doesn't matter. Let me pretend that it won't happen. Or in any case, it won't happen today. It will happen tomorrow. It will happen on tomorrow that can forever be put off. Perhaps it won't even matter if I don't think about it. Of course, we know this isn't true. If the house catches on fire, we can refuse to think about it. Nevertheless, it burns. It does no good to ignore the fact that it is burning.
What is the reason for our acting the fool, forever putting off that which we cannot put off forever? Why do I not ready myself to die tomorrow or this evening? Well, one reason is obvious, and our Lord points it out. We are all, to a certain extent, overly attached to these worldly goods, things of this life, creatures, health, wealth, pleasure, our own will. And this attachment to things of the world <coughs> become what I can only call grotesque. Even for us, you know how it is, people make up lists of what they want to do before dying. I'm not ready to die. I haven't done this or that. What is, what is it that I want? Perhaps it's traveling to a foreign land, reading a certain book, learning a certain instrument, something like that. Is this not grotesque? Or are we to think that, yes, being in heaven is it's acceptable, not so bad after all, could do worse, but it's not for me, it's not yet. Being with God in his presence? Okay, one day, not quite yet, I have other things to do, perhaps more important things to do. I want to visit Europe, perhaps see the Holy Land. I want to visit those shrines of the martyrs. I don't so much want to meet the God worshipped by those martyrs for whom they died. I want to visit the shrines of the martyrs. That's grotesque, if it's our opinion. And do you not see perhaps a doctrinal error behind all this thinking, which so easily creeps into our minds? What do people say? She was so young, so many years ahead of, ahead of her, so talented, <coughs> and she might have become this or that, a great this or that, and now she's been cut off. Her life has been ended by an unexpected and horrible disease. Life is not fair. How can God permit such a thing? Surely we're not too surprised that an unbeliever would think that way. But are those not also our thoughts? Do Catholics not share, to some extent, at least in that kind of mentality? Too bad for her. She was deprived of the good things of this world and died young. And if we think this way, or if we see others thinking this way, we must ask, do we, or do they, really want to see God? Do they think it important, good, worthwhile? <clears throat> Surely our desire should be closer to that of St. Martin, for example. St. Martin, who so long ago worked himself to death, a long life and wanted, wanted nothing better than to see God to be received in heaven 
and on his deathbed bed we find recorded these words, which are not our words, not normally. Now, if I still can be useful to my brother, to my fellow man, I'm willing to remain and do the work, to remain here and suffer, to continue this life in the valley of tears. If I can still be useful to others, I'm willing to stay behind and suffer. But of course, what I really want deep down is to go to my true home, which is heaven. Often that is not our opinion at all. What do people think today? What do we think, perhaps, in the back of our mind? There are certain people who want death. They're ready for it. Life has gone on so long, and suffering is so great. And if they don't say it to God, if they at least think it inside, all of this suffering must continue. Yes, I'm willing to let go and to die. Please put an end to my suffering. Then I will be happy to give up the ghost. But, if it can be taken away, I would be content to stay around a little longer and to enjoy for a few more years the good things of this world. I'd be very content to continue to enjoy my life in this valley of tears. Though I think that is more often the opinion of people today. When they say they are ready for death, they have simply given up. It's become too hard. They want to get past the suffering. And so much they want to see God to be useful to their fellow man. They've just given up. The church celebrates with great joy those martyrs <coughs> slain for the faith. Those little boys and girls cruelly beaten, tortured, murdered because they would not renounce their faith in Jesus Christ. The church celebrates them on the altars. In fact, it used to be only the martyrs. St. Martin was the first confessor. It wasn't good enough to be a confessor at one point. One had to be a martyr, to have a mass, to have an office. These martyrs, tortured, murdered, and all the rest, little boys and girls, were they being deprived of the goods of this world? Yes, in a certain sense they were. They were being deprived of the greatest good, greatest natural good we have, which is the life itself, being taken away from them. But does the church mourn that? Does a true Catholic pity a martyr for being killed? for going to heaven, for having to be at vision. No, the man who truly pitches the martyr simply does not have the faith, which we call the Catholic faith. He doesn't. He doesn't. I know that imagining seeing God for all eternity really does put a strain on the, say, the human mind we're so accustomed to moving about that we can hardly imagine resting in God for all eternity. It's what St. Augustine wanted. 
He said, they don't, my soul cannot rest until it rests in thee. And we move about so much. We have this material body, can't do anything about it, and nothing wrong with it. But we grow so accustomed to this that we have a hard time understanding what it means to be at peace, to be at rest in God, not jumping about here and there. Nevertheless, if we are not now wanting in a real way to be in God's presence, then something has gone wrong, something has gone very wrong in our lives, then we must reconsider. Surely, Passion Week is a good time to reconsider such things. Do we really want to go to heaven? To be with God? Do we want to remain in the Valley of Tears? Many benefits, many benefits of this desire to see God. Not just the desire, but an ardent desire to see Him, to share in His divine life. There's many benefits which we should think about as well. For example, does it not remove from us many unwarranted fears concerning death? Why does death frighten us in the first place? Well, I hope the first reason for us is that we fear losing our soul. But why is it that people do lose their souls? Why do they find themselves among the reprobate when they die? Surely it is, at least to a great extent, because they find themselves attached so much to the things of this world to creatures, to what is created. And so when we detach ourselves from this world, we find it so much easier to part with material goods, with created things, for example, with our own will, which is created. It costs us very little to leave the world. And this detachment makes us so much more likely save our souls. To the extent that we detach ourselves from the world, we are likely to save our souls. And thus death should become much less frightful than it is for those who worry about such things. Why do we worry about such things? Why do we worry about dying? Well, if I have kept the law, if I have done penance, if I have fought the good fight, in the words of St. Paul, there is a crown waiting for me, crown of victory. <clears throat> he says it. He looks at himself and says, I judge myself and yet I find nothing, but my judgment doesn't count. There is one who judges truly, and it's his judgment that counts. But as far as I can tell, I find nothing in me to be condemned. I fought the good fight, run the good race, I'm almost there, but not quite yet, and a crown awaits me if I finish well. He's not sure of it. St. Paul is not sure. But when he looks at himself, 
Have I kept the law? Yes. Have I done penance for my sins? Yes. So there's nothing to worry about. And he doesn't make the error of assuming that he will be saved. But he's done his part. And that's it. And he throws himself into the hands of God. And he also says, not only for me, but for all those who do as I have done. Surely we all consider hell to be a place we should avoid, to be feared, and all the rest. But how often do we think of heaven as a place to be desired? Do we think of going to heaven? Do we want it? If you want it, there's only one way to get there, and that is to die. You're not going to get there before dying. So in a certain sense, properly understood, our death must be wanted, joyfully embraced. Of course, this means a holy death, a good death, what we call a good death. He died a good death. It truly would be false to treat death in only one of its aspects that is in a bad way. It is quite true that for many people, for how many, we don't know, but for many people, no doubt the majority, death is an unmitigated catastrophe. There's nothing just there's nothing for it. There's nothing one can do for it. One dies and one sins and that is it. This is quite true, and we can never forget that. I don't think we do forget it so much. What we tend to forget is for others, death is a, I wouldn't say a relief, a relief, a release from what? Well, from the sorrows, sufferings, doubts, temptations of this life, all those things which strain us so much, when death comes, they are gone. They can no longer be with us. Not at all. No more temptations, nothing. Never again must I worry about losing my soul if I die in a state of grace. What a release that is. The pains, physical, moral, psychological, all of these things which I have suffered, when I die, if I die well, mean nothing to me anymore. They are gone, absolutely gone. I die in the state of grace and I look back upon my sacrifices, what will I think of them? Will I consider them to have been too many or too great? Or will I think of them as having been paltry, rather few? And will I perhaps be surprised that I am saved, given all those occasions I had to make a sacrifice, to give myself to God, which I ignored? What will I think of them? 
compared to what I think of them today. <coughs> I can't do that, give up that. I can't. I can't. It's too much for me. When we die, what will we think? Which of our sacrifices will we regret? Or will we look back upon ourselves and perhaps think that we were a bit foolish not to have sacrificed more? All those efforts against temptations which I thought were so unbearable, what will I think of them then? What we will think of them then is what we ought to think of them now. But when I die, no doubt, if I die in the state of grace, there will be a debt remaining to be paid. Surely, very few people escape that. If they have their sins forgiven, they die with their soul immaculate. But they don't go straight to heaven. There is much to be paid. There's a debt they refuse to pay on this earth. What did the theologians tell us? Well, they tell us that those holy souls who die with the debt to pay certainly would not want to appear before God before paying that debt. They wouldn't have the audacity to do so. They wouldn't think of it. No, it's not proper for me to appear before God to have a beatific vision because I've not done my penance. Theologians tell us also that, that penance one must do in purgatory is so much worse than what we would do in this world. And it is most childish to put off that penance, that restitution, to another time, if that time even come. Certainly not sure. But we fall into that trap, don't we? I'll do my penance later. All I want to do is to be saved, to die in the state of grace. And then, well, I'll do my penance then. To say this, when all the theologians tell us that doing it then will be so much worse than doing it now, if we can't do it now, why do we think it will be easy to do then? Nevertheless, that suffering soul doing a penance we find today unbearable, will still know, will still have that blessed assurance of the beatific vision. We'll no longer need hope in the sense of wondering whether it's going to come. Assured. No. I am in purgatory and yet there's no way I can lose my soul. And already this is a great grace for the man who has died in a state of grace. I cannot lose my soul. <clears throat> what a relief to think of such things. <clears throat> Many people worry so much about dying. When I say they worry about dying, I don't mean that they pay attention to dying or that they prepare for it. They don't. They simply worry about it. And this worry does nothing good at all. Nothing. 
does reflect something, though. Reflects a lack of trust in God, fascination with self, and it leads to a mental psychological state which makes facing death reasonably most difficult. So much questioning, so many what-ifs, and the last thing upon our mind becomes a diligent attempt to sanctify our souls, which is the only thing that will keep us from an unhappy death. That's what worry does. Drives us to an unhappy death instead of making us do what we ought to do to have a happy one. What should that happy death be? What should it resemble? Perhaps we should look at St. Joseph as the best model for a happy death. That seems to be the way that he is considered. We don't really have a description of that death, of course. St. Joseph wasn't one to speak of it. But we can easily imagine it, I think, worn out after many years of labor and duty. His health surely failed him at some point. And there he was in the company of his family. He lay down, knowing for sure that his last moment had come, and it was peaceful. There was no martyrdom. Peaceful. Peaceful in the sense that, yes, it was bodily peaceful, but also in the sense of having a peaceful soul, knowing that he had spent a lifetime doing God's will, and he was dying faithfully. In fact, we saw that in the Mass today, the preface of St. Joseph. How is he described in the preface? Being faithful and being prudent. In fact, we'll see that as well. Peaceful in the true sense. Today, so many people pray for a peaceful death, which is a false peace. They wish to, say, to die quietly in their sleep, something like that. That is, to die without knowing it, to die without being able to make an act of faith, hope, charity, or contrition. But what does the church say? Well, the church prays for the opposite. From a sudden and unexpected death, spare us, O Lord. Read that in the litany of the saints. From a sudden and unexpected death, spare us, O Lord. An unexpected death, when it comes as a thief in the night. Church prays for the opposite. God forbid we should die without being in a state of mind that allows us pray for forgiveness to make an act of contrition. Today, people pray for a false peace, a peace of not suffering and all the rest, without the slightest thought of repentance, for example. Today is the feast of St. Joseph. Paul's right well. What do we read in the litany? St. Joseph, hope of the sick, patron of the dying, and Joseph most prudent. Joseph most
most prudent. Faithful and prudent servant is called in the, lit, in the preface of the Mass. How happy and prudent is he who strives to be such now in this life as he desires to be found in his death. The death and the imitation of Christ. The second letter to the Corinthians, St. Paul writes, Now is an acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. And what is prudence? Prudence is that virtue which allows us to choose those means appropriate for obtaining that end which we want, that goal. That's what prudence is. And thus it is the greatest of the moral virtues, and without it you can't have the others. And what does that mean? What does it imply? It implies living now as we wish to be found then, that is, at the moment of death. Last Friday at Mass, we had the Gospel reading of our Lord raising Lazarus from the dead. This is one of the last miracles he performed, and in a certain way it would be that one which drove those against him to uh, demand his death, put him to death. If one can raise a man from the dead, he is God. Only God has power over death. Claimed to be God for a miracle, which showed he was God, and they could not bear it. In fact, in his rising from the dead, he will imitate Lazarus, except that he doesn't need anyone to roll away the stones, covering the grave as Lazarus did. You must be familiar, some of you at least, with that beautiful melody. After a requiem mass, when the faithful departed, when the coffin is taken out of the church and led to the cemetery, in pride, some beautiful melody, and the words go something like this. May the angels lead you to paradise, and may the martyrs at your arrival welcome you and take you to the holy city which is Jerusalem. May the choir of angels receive you and may you as Lazarus, who is poor here below, find eternal rest. Now of course this, is a, this isn't the same Lazarus. Remember this is the Lazarus who is poor, sickly, looking for crumbs from the table of the rich man, didn't have them suffered good, bad things in this world and he had good things in the next, in the next that is eternal rest. And that is what God would have for us. It's what he wants for us. No matter what we suffer here below, what we have, don't have, that we have eternal rest in the life to come. St. Paul will write to the Corinthians, O death, where is thy victory? Where is thy sting? There is none. For the faithful man there is. Death has no victory. Death has no sting. Death has nothing over us. And after all, this is the will of God. Why were we created to be with him? Not just here below, but hereafter. That's what he wants. If that's what he wants, what will he not give us? 
Is he going to spare us any helps, any graces, anything we need to arrive at that heavenly home, the New Jerusalem? Not at all. He is going to give us everything we need. Death is to be feared, but to be feared with that holy fear, that fear we have when we approach God, not with a servile fear, not at all, not with that servile fear that we might feel before a God who does not love us and has no mercy. Now that is not the fear we are to have. Death is not certain. But for the faithful man, what will it be? It will be a release from the valley of tears. It will be already an entry into heaven, if not immediately. It will be the beatific vision, life with God forever and ever. And thus we must want it, think of it, desire it, rightly understood, of course. Especially on this day of St. Joseph, let us go to him. We can't expect to have his death because we haven't had his life. If we haven't lived as he did, we can't expect to die as he did. But we can't expect to have his intercession, to have his prayers, to have everything we truly want, to put ourselves in the right disposition. May our death be a holy one that we could rejoice with him and praise with him one day that the Lord has created us so that we could live with him forever and ever. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.